And happy Mother's Day, everybody. And mothers, we are so thankful for you, your investment, your care, your patience, your provision, all those things that were just up on the screen. We want to take a moment to acknowledge you. Now let's take a moment to turn to the Word of God. John chapter 3, verse 16 today. You ought to know where that is. Maybe even not even need to turn there. John 3.16 will be our primary text, and we'll move around a little bit in Scripture, but John 3.16 will be the main spot where we find ourselves today. So I have a mother. I know it might surprise some of you, but I do. I have a mother. Her name is Betty, and Betty is a certain age. It's always a tricky thing, right? Just like the video said, to say what age your mother is. But she is a certain age, and she lives in mechanics... Pennsylvania with my father. They've been married for 48 and a half years. She's been a nurse for most of her life, um, but she's also been other things. She's a piano teacher, an organist for a church, and she volunteers in multiple different scenarios. My mom's a hard worker. Um, that's one thing I've learned from her over just watching her live her life. She was always busy with things. She's got three kids. Two girls and then an exceptional son. (laughs) And when I was growing up, Betty taught me foundational things which helped me form and mature as I grew. Uh, Some of those lessons are still a part of my life today. Um, While others of those things that she taught me as a young child, I've matured past. Thankfully, maybe. And so I don't really engage some of those things that she taught me when I was a young child with the same level of engagement. I've grown past them. For instance, here's a few things that my mom taught me that I maybe don't engage with the same level of obedience that I once did. My mom always taught me when I was a little boy to uh, hold someone's hand when I crossed the street. Thankfully, I've moved past that. My mom always taught me to ask her permission before I left the house to play with friends. I no longer call my mom when I leave the house. She taught me to not get in the car with someone I don't know. And that would make for interesting conversations when I got an Uber. So I don't do that anymore. She told me not to take candy from strangers. That's changed a bit for me as I've gotten older because I'm not too concerned about taking candy from strangers any longer. In fact, if someone offers me candy, they aren't strangers anymore. They're my friend. So that's changed. And my mom always instructed me to make sure my hair comb was combed before I left the house. And that kind of took care of itself. (laughs) There's much that our mothers have taught us as we were little and things that maybe we don't necessarily hold to with the same level of obedience. And then there are those things that our moms taught us that we live our life based on. One of the things that my mom taught me as a young little boy in Wesleyville, Pennsylvania, was the verse John 3.16. And some of you guys, sorry. (laughs) Well, that was not in my notes. That's not there. Some of you had that same experience. Your mom spending time with you in the Word of God. And that's why you have that verse memorized today. John 3.16. And so I thought for us today, as we think about what to preach on on Mother's Day, I thought it's really important for us to speak on a foundational truth, a foundational passage of Scripture that many of us have memorized and know, 
but maybe think that we've moved past. Maybe we don't return to John 3.16 like we ought to because it was a truth that we learned in childhood, but maybe we think we no longer need to reflect upon. And so I want us today to actually unpack this one verse, John 3.16, and see why it is such a foundational scripture for us as Christians. So let's talk about the context of John chapter 3. If you have your Bible in front of you here, the whole book of John is John laying out who Jesus is, clarifying a bit of who Christ is as the Son of God and why we must believe in him. That word believe is a major theme. And in John chapter 3, we see Jesus engaging with Nicodemus. who He's having a conversation with Nicodemus, who is a religious leader among the Jews in first century A.D. In this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, centered on the requirement of new birth, new life, born not of the flesh, born of the Spirit of God, and Nicodemus just could not get his mind wrapped around this. In fact, he couldn't get his mind wrapped around the logistics of how this new life could happen. How can it be that I, an old man, can be born again? In short, Nicodemus couldn't understand that spiritual life cannot come from your sinful flesh being good enough. And so Christ gives him the answer on how the new birth occurs in verse 16 of John chapter 3. And since we all know it together, I'd like for us to actually read it or say it out loud as we start our time engaging the text. So John chapter 3 verse 16, it'll be on the screen behind me. Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so as we unpack this text today, if you're going to take notes, real easy notes for you today. Four points, they all begin with the letter D. These four points are this. As we look at John 3.16, we'll see a danger of perishing. We'll see the design of God. We'll see the deliverance of true belief. And then we'll see the destiny of true belief. Four points, all beginning with the letter D. So let's start with a danger. The danger. In John chapter 3, verse 16, we see the danger. The danger is that we perish. The danger is perishing. And as Christ speaks John 3.16, he takes the position that really all of humanity is perishing. The normative position for humanity is to be in this position of perishing. And so when I read this, I ask myself the question, well, why are we in this position of perishing? Why is this a danger for humanity? And to look for the answer, we need to kind of look a little bit deeper into the text and move down just a little bit into verse 19, where we see John 3, 19, Jesus says, and this is the judgment. In other words, this is the verdict why humanity is perishing. And what is the verdict? The light has come into the world. And who is the light? John 1, 4 tells us that the light was Jesus Christ, and in, in him is the light. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so the verdict against humanity, the reason that perishing is a part of our existence is because we have loved the darkness rather than the light. We have loved wickedness rather than we have loved deliverance from wickedness. 
Our deeds are evil, and yet we act as if they're not. But really, our wicked deeds are just a part of the equation. It's not so much what we do as much as who we are. Because our wicked deeds are actually just a reflection of the wicked heart that beats in all of humanity. And this wicked heart not only fails to surrender to God, but is actually in its evilness actively at war with God. In Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us this, that the natural mind is hostile to God and cannot submit to his reign or rule. And those that are of the flesh, those that are, of the, that are living out the wickedness of their flesh, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, cannot please God. In our love of darkness, we are perishing. Humanity has a perishing problem rooted in our position against God. And that's universal. But sometimes we read this, and I, even as we just said it, and as we've grown up knowing John 3.16, we move quickly past the perish part, and we don't necessarily unfold what it means to actually perish. And so the weight of this is actually kind of missed upon us. And so I want us to, to flesh this out a little bit. What does it mean to perish biblically? Let's trace this out. Let's trace this thought out in the scriptures to see what Christ actually means by perishing. So let's look at this. Perishing means condemnation. In John chapter 3 verse 18, the verse right before verse 19 that we just read, verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. In John 3, 16, we are told that belief results in not perishing, but in verse 18, we are identifying that the lack of belief actually results in condemnation. So perishing is to be condemned. And we know that condemnation is actually a legal term. It's a sentence that is given to you. If you are condemned in the courts, then you are guilty. And we have been deemed guilty because our hearts are wicked. And so there's condemnation. And so when Christ says, shall not perish, he means that we shall not be condemned. But it's also more than condemnation. Because as we look further in Scripture, specifically John chapter 3, verse 36, we see that perishing means the wrath of God being poured out upon us. In verse 36 of chapter 3, it reads, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Belief, obedience, fail, failure to obey, failure to believe results in the wrath of God. And what is the wrath of God? It's literally the angry opposition of God to you. It's his heavy hand against you. And that is the reality of not believing, is the heavy hand of God upon you because of our wicked heart. And so perishing is condemnation, perishing is the wrath of God, but perishing is also a tormented reality. Now John also wrote the book of Revelation. In Revelation 14, verses 10 through 11, it reads that he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. The he being mentioned there is the person who follows the beast rather than Jesus Christ. 
As someone who does not believe in Christ, that you experience the wrath of God, which turns into the torment of fire and sulfur. The one who will live in opposition of God will experience the sentence of condemnation, which means we remain under God's wrath, which is seen here in Revelation as a torment which goes on forever and ever. And lastly, perishing means a bodily reality. John chapter 5, 28 tells us that an hour is coming when all those that are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There will be a day where the physical resurrection of all humanity occurs. And in this resurrection, those who are Christ, who have surrendered to his work and believe in him, will be raised to experience life, while those who live in love and darkness will be raised to experience the judgment of the holy God in a bodily fashion. And so when we read John 3.16 and see the term perishing there, this is what it means. It means that perishing in John 3.16 is condemnation in the courtroom of God. It is God's wrath poured out on us. It is his torment given to us. It is here in John 5.28 a bodily reality. And here it is. And the reality is that according to Paul in Romans 3.23 and 6.23, that none of us will escape perishing because of sin within us. For we all have sinned and we all have fallen short and the wages of our sin is death and we are wicked in our hearts unless there is a rescue. Because humanity perishes unless there is a rescue. And so this is where we now head back to 316. The danger is that there is a perishing for humanity, but there's also a design. There's a, there's a design for the rescue of humanity, and that design is found in God's love and God's Son. So look back at your text here, John 3, 16. Notice the very first phrase, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It is a shocking, shocking phrase. The readers earlier in church history would read this and be shocked at this. When Christ said it, Nicodemus had to have been shocked. And here's why it is shocking. Because of the expanse of God's love. The expanse of it. When we read this passage, we see that John tells us that God's love is directed towards the whole world. The word there is cosmos, the world that is fallen, the world that is sinful. And it's shocking because it typically means that God loves this fallen world that does not love him. And whenever John writes, typically throughout the book of John, you'll notice that John speaks about love and God's love, but he always speaks about God's love being directed towards his son, or the son's love being directed toward the father, or the father's love being directed to those who love the son. And here is the only instance where it speaks of God's love being directed to the sinful world. And it's meant to stand out to us. It's meant to stand out to us as shocking to recognize that God's rescue is originating in his love. And it is God's pursuing love for the sinner. 
which by the way, we see throughout the entirety of scripture that God pursues the sinner because the sinner will not pursue God. Genesis chapter three, we see the beginnings of this when Adam and Eve sin and Adam tries to hide from God, but it is God who goes and pursues the sinful hiding Adam. And so John 3.16 begins with the earth-shattering truth that God, the holy God, loves the world, the sinful world, the perishing sinners in the world. And John 3.16 expresses what we call the free offer of the gospel. And here's what this free offer of the gospel means. There are no limits to this offer. It goes out to all people of every ethnic group, in every age, in every socioeconomic category. And best of all, this offer goes out to every degree of sinner. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And it is his love and his love alone which turns the perishing sinner into a redeemed saint. Which leads to the second shocking point of John 3.16. That's the extent of his love. What does God's love drive him to do? Give his son. When we read this, it says, For God so loved the world, we oftentimes think that that word so as the amount of love that God gave. And that's not an incorrect reading. But in the Greek, the actual formation of this sentence is this. In this fashion, God loved the world. And so you read this as the action of God's love was his son being sent. In this action of God, the son of God was sent to rescue humanity from perishing. And why is that important? Well, who is the son? That's a question that we should ask. Well, the son is his only son. And in our humanity as a father, I only have one son. And to think of this in my humanity, I understand the significance a bit of that. But we're also meant to understand that the state of humanity, the offense of the sin against God was such that the only gift that could be given to pay for the sin of humanity was the highest gift that God could give. And so he gave him up. He surrendered his son. And his son, by the way, was not created for this act. This son has always been. It's an important thing for us to understand. It's an important delineation and clarification that John makes in John 1.1 and John 1.14. We're told that the word was God and the word was with God. He is God. In verse 14, we are told that he put on human flesh so that the loving plan of God might indeed be enacted. And then in Hebrews 1.3, we are told that Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. All these things show the significance of God giving his only son who took on flesh that the glory of God might be evidenced through the work of redemption. And the holy God took on flesh so that the holiness of God might work through the holy son and conquer the sinful flesh of humanity. And what was the intent of the son? Well, the intent of Jesus Christ, our savior, was to carry out the plan of God. In John 12, as Christ was coming to the point where he would be sacrificed for our sin, He asks this question, what shall I say? Father, should I say, save me from this hour? 
But for this purpose I have come, and this purpose I have come to this hour, that I might redeem all people to myself. In the face of sacrifice, the intent of the Son was to fulfill the plan of God to bring all people, his people, to himself, to redeem them. One of the definitions of the word redeem is to buy back from captivity. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, we see that that's exactly what Christ did. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, and he has made us both one and has broken down on his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see, Jesus Christ was not sent to be a moral example of how to live. He was not sent to show us how to become a better person. He was sent as the expression of God's love to redeem a sinful and a perishing people and to bear the perishing effect of your sin that you cannot pay for yourself. And he did so perfectly. He did so shockingly in the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, the love of God through the work of God redeems the people of God. The work of God through the work of the Son of God redeems the people of God. God's love is so shocking in its expanse and in its extent that it is God's love that saves the people. He gave his only Son that those who believe will not perish but have everlasting life, which leads us to the third point of our talk today. The design of God's love through his Son takes us to the reality that there is deliverance in true belief. There's a strange reality with this gospel conversation. I'm always in awe about this aspect of it. Whenever we speak about the deliverance of God to pay for our sins, the deliverance of God to redeem for himself a people, I'm always struck by this weird point, this strange aspect of engagement. And that strange aspect of engagement is this. There are those, maybe even in this room, who do not believe this. Because there are those who will believe and experience the deliverance of Jesus Christ, and there are those of us who will not believe and who remain in the state of perishing. And this reality of belief is something that we have to pause on right now because in John 3.16, we tell us that belief in the work of Jesus Christ is what differentiates between those who are perishing or those that have eternal life. And there are many, many, maybe even some of us in this room today, who think we have belief, but really don't. And so I want to press just for a second here that there could be some of us in this place this morning in a room this size with this many people, there are some of us in this room who say we believe, but we actually do not. It could be just intellectual assent and not true heartfelt surrender. And so I want to clarify a bit, what is true belief and what is not true belief? Because it is possible to believe and still perish. There is a belief in the things of God and the work of Christ that is non-redemptive. It's just simple intellectual assent. 
It's the belief that we see in the person of Judas and in the language of the demons with regards to who Christ is. Just for two points of reference, Luke 4.34, the demons say to Christ himself, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Luke 4.41, the demons say to Christ, crying, you are the Son of God. There was a profession of Christ's identity, but there was no surrender recognizing their sin and their need for Christ's divinity. See, false belief is evidenced by an interaction with the person of Jesus Christ that centers on your ability and your ability to determine the limits of his reign in your heart. And then you establish boundaries on just how much surrender in your life he actually requires. False belief is evidenced by an interaction with the person of Jesus Christ that centers on your ability to determine the limits of his reign in your heart and establishes firm boundaries on just how much surrender in your life he actually requires. False belief is focused upon you determining how much you will give to Jesus. It is not true surrender. And I think for many of us, maybe this is where we actually are engaging this gospel. Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, but that's about the extent of it. It's intellectual assent. It's all about me. But as much as there's a, a belief that is not real, there is true belief. And I want to clarify what that is as well. Because true belief is present and perpetual. In John 3.16, look at the tense of the word believe in John 3.16. It is that whoever believes in him, that word believes is a present tense and that means that it is ongoing existence. True belief in Jesus Christ is not an intellectual ascent. It is an intellectual ascent and a surrender of your life that goes throughout your entirety of your life. And this is how Jesus Christ has presented this belief to his disciples then and to us now. What's it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, John, and Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31, to believe in him is to abide in his word and remain in his word, to grow in his word, to be fixated upon him, to take up residence in the things that he says and the things that he tells you to do and be. And in John 20, 31, we're told that the reason that the book of John was written that, was that you might believe and that by believing in Christ, you might have life in his name. And so true belief has a starting point and then a carrying on throughout the entirety of your life. And it's a belief in the work of Jesus Christ, the source of true life. And in John 6, 35, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, I am the bread of life, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst or never hunger again, shall be satisfied. So true belief in Jesus means coming to Jesus and receiving him as the food and the nourishment that satisfies your soul all of your life. And I wonder, does that describe your relationship with Jesus Christ? Which leads us to the effect of true belief. Because that leads us to a reality that the destiny of the believer is established. The destiny of the believer is established. 
the final phrase here, John 3.16, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, this just doesn't just mean that you will live forever. For all will live forever. But not all will have eternal life. And so for those who have true belief, here's what eternal life looks like. Eternal life means eternal commendation. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He, has, he does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Notice the language of 524. Possession now, realized now, has eternal life now, passed from death to life now. The condemnation of your sin has been replaced with Christ's commendation beginning now. Eternal commendation because of the work of Christ. It also turns into eternal confidence. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Eternal confidence. Because it's a life that is rooted in the power and the source of life, Jesus Christ himself. And so therefore it is empowered and sustained by his eternality, by his life. He is the resurrection and the life. And because we are his, we too now have the guarantee of his life forever and ever. And this reality, settled into the heart of the true believer, is what allows the Christian to live in his security in the midst of this insecure life. It's how Paul can write Romans 8.38 when he says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you truly believe in the work of Jesus Christ, you have eternal confidence in his ability to sustain you all the days that he gives you. We have eternal confidence because we know that the love of God through the work of the Son of God redeems the people of God. If you ever want to summarize John 3.16, there's your sentence, as if John 3.16 isn't short enough. And so whoever believes in Jesus experiences new birth, has eternal life, and is saved. And the alternative, failure to believe, is to perish, to lose one's life, and to be doomed to destruction. There is no third option. One Saturday in 1982, President Reagan wrote in his journal, again at the White House, more of Saturday's work, plus a long letter I have to write to Loyal. I'm afraid for him. His health is failing badly. Loyal was President Reagan's father-in-law, and he was just wait, days away from death. Loyal was a groundbreaking neurosurgeon and scientist who had lived a life of great success, but he was a professed believer in science 
and a professed unbeliever in Jesus. And so President Reagan wrote him one last letter. This was the last letter that he would write to Loyal. And in this letter, it was a plea for Loyal to consider Christ. Reagan outlined more than 120 prophecies about Christ that were written 700 years before Jesus was born. And as Reagan closed the letter to his father-in-law, a letter that would be his final words to Loyal, he closed them with this. The Apostle John said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. I hope you believe this. Nancy Reagan reported that just two days before Loyal's death, Loyal requested a meeting with the chaplain of the hospital and prayed with him at that point. There is great power in understanding John 3.16. Reagan's plea to his father-in-law was rooted in the summation of the gospel that John 3.16 is. And it's more than a verse that you learn in childhood and it's more than a verse that you just progress past. It is the summation of the gospel that anchors your heart all the days that God gives you. And it's the hope and the goodness of God and the sufficiency of Christ's work to redeem the one who believes in him. And that is a truth that we must return to again and again and again and again. And brothers and sisters, just as Reagan plead for his father-in-law to recognize John 3.16 and his need for Jesus Christ, it is my plea to you today. Some of you in this room think you believe, but you actually just assent. My plea is that you would truly believe in him, in Jesus Christ and his work to pay for your sin, that you would give your life to him and that you would indeed have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Almighty God, holy God, Father God, we thank you for this message out of John 3.16 that tells us that in your great love you sent your son to pay for our sins, to take on sins that he himself did not have, that indeed we might be made the righteousness of God. And so I pray, Lord, in this room that your spirit would convict and draw men and women to confession, to surrender to true belief, even in this morning. Lord, that lives would be changed, that eternal life would be granted, that men and women might call you Savior. And Lord, we thank you for the effectiveness of the gospel, and we trust in it, just as we trust your Son, Jesus Christ, for our salvation. In your name we pray. Amen.